0: son of man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's a haunting question. You get extra points for being able to pronounce Melchizedek. It's not a name that uh, rolls around Christian thought a lot. Nobody writes songs about Melchizedek. You know how hard it is to go to a worship service and then know hymns about Melchizedek? You too? No, I've written two Oh, he's written two. <laughs> Don't get excited. I know what one of them was. (laughs) The words were, Melchizedek was a great high priest. The great high priest was he. (laughs) (laughs) He walked out of Jerusalem for Abram. He wanted to see. (laughs) (laughs) The words end there. I just couldn't think of a tune to go with it. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, when we come to a passage of Scripture that says "After the order of Melchizedek We feel like we're going to be sucked down into a vortex of theological jargon and historical references and uh, uh, that somehow our heads are just going to come out spinning and we won't know why we did what we did. The reason we are looking at Christ, the priest after the order of Melchizedek, is because we are in danger constantly attacked by the world under the assault of the adversary. And at moments in our lives, we are tempted to fall back. The book of Hebrews later on will say, shrink back from the gospel because it's causing persecution. It's causing hardship in our lives. Uh, Sometimes it seems as though it might just be easier to give in and go along with the world to retreat back to an old way of life. That's what the readers of the letter to the Hebrews were facing. Uh, We garner that from the things that are said in Scripture, that uh, they were tempted to uh, turn back and just sort of back off away from Christ and retreat back into their old religion of Judaism. After all, um, Christ was... Uh, foretold in the Old Testament, when you got together, you worshiped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and uh, Jesus had had come in uh, uh, among the the people of God, among the Jews, and, and so to have faith in Christ would seem like a, a natural thing to do until the persecution came your way. You see the, the Romans were comfortable with the Jews; they knew how to deal with the Jews, and so they left the Jews alone, but these Christian upstarts they didn 't know what to do. They kept saying things like, God is righteous and holy, and your God is no God at all, and you're a sinner, and and you're condemned to eternal judgment unless you accept Christ. Whoa, wait a minute, the Jews never said that to us. In fact, they never said anything to us at all. And so the persecution came upon the Christians. And you could look at that and say, well, why am I being persecuted and I'm losing my house, I'm losing my job. Uh, for the the sake of, of the name Christian, when I could just go across the street, back into the synagogue, still have the Old Testament, still have the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, still have one God, you know, all those kinds of things, and I'll be safe then. And the book of Hebrews is written with this message. Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Focus on Christ. Think about who He is and what He has done. See, this morning, wherever you are in life, Christ is the answer. If you don't think He's the answer, you've got the wrong question. Wherever you are, whether it's in despondency, despair, depression, whether it's struggling with sin and temptation, whether it is dealing with the hardships of too much money and you don't know what to do with it, or not enough money and you don't know how to get along. Whatever it is, consider Jesus. Focus your attention on Christ, and never more so than in our spiritual walk and in our spiritual well-being. To consider Jesus, focus on Jesus, and in Hebrews 3.1, focus on Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our faith. Now the reason he says that, and he goes on to explain, by apostle he means one sent with a message, and a mission uh, Moses was sent with a message and with a mission to lead God's people out of Egypt through the wilderness to the promised rest and He said and and Jesus is a greater apostle for he's leading us to an eternal rest and yet we are still on the journey therefore don't uh, be unbelievers don't don't shrink back in unbelief Uh, Don't fall off to the wayside. Persevere. Keep your eyes focused on Christ. Follow him. And then in chapter 5, he says, And Jesus is our high priest. He's our high priest, and not like any other high priest, but he's a high priest who has ascended into the heavenlies. And and therefore, keep your eyes focused on Jesus, focused on Christ, because when you understand who he is and what he has done, your life will gravitate towards him. He will be so wonderfully beautiful to you that you will be attracted to Christ, and you will follow him. And that's why he sets before us, Christ, the apostle, the high priest of our faith. You know, um, and there's two things to think about uh, when you think about Jesus. One is who he is, and the second is what has he done? Uh, who Who is Jesus? He's the Son of God. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's the Word made flesh and dwelling among us. Uh, He is the mediator of creation. He is the one in whom all the universe finds its meaning and its structure and its purpose and direction. He is the King of all kings, and He is the Lord of all lords. He is the majestic Savior. That's who Christ is. But the other thing to consider is what Christ does. And through the uh, centuries of Christian thought, um, basically uh, Christians have come to focus the work of Christ on three basic ideas. He is prophet, he is priest, and he is king. He is the prophet as the word of God. He is the one who not only declares what God says, he is God saying it. He is the prophet who brings uh, the application of God's wisdom and power and might to the daily work and situation of people. Uh, He is the prophet who is not only um, a prophet, but the fulfillment of all prophecy. And so he is the prophet. He is the proclamation of God's plan, God's will, and God's design for us. So that's what he does. He does prophet things. Skip to the other one. He is king. Mentioned a moment ago, he is king of kings and lord of lords. He's the czar of all czars, the president of all presidents. He is the prime minister of all prime ministers. All power, all authority belongs to him, and he does king type things. He is sovereign, he is absolute sovereign. And so he is prophet and he is king. But this morning, we look at that middle term he is priest. Now, just about everything we say about Jesus as a priest, the bulk of it, comes out of the book of Hebrews. That's why we're looking at it, because this is the great work of Christ on our behalf. He does priest-type things. Now we started looking at that back in chapter 5, that a priest is someone taken from among men uh, in order that he might represent his brothers to God and God to his brothers. Uh, a priest is a is, is someone who is, is sort of trying to bridge the gap, the gulf between men and God, and yet human priests are not able to do that uh, sufficiently. They themselves have to uh, be uh, bridged over uh, by God's grace as well. But Jesus is our great high priest like no other. And the final thought in chapter 5 was And that means he's a priest After the order of Melchizedek And that's what we want To look at this morning That this priestly function of Christ Is according to the order Of Melchizedek Now why would that be Significant Well first of all I can tell you It's hard to understand We've we got a lot of work to do this, you know, Put your, your, your thinking caps on I will I will wait until someone puts a cap on. You know, at the early service, at 8.30, where all the people come and just want to sing hymns, I had people putting caps on. They were going <laughs> to think about this. You folks are saying, yeah, come on, entertain me. <laughs> Put your thinking caps on. <laughs> Thank you. One in the I'll, I'll, Okay, I've got three people I can talk to, the rest of you, okay. But it's hard to understand. We know it's hard to understand because the Bible tells us it's hard to understand. He says, I'd love to tell you about this, the the priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, but it's hard to understand because you become dull of hearing. You remember that? You become dull of hearing. You're immature. You need to really uh, get the basics uh, going in in your thought process again. We'll do that some other time, but for right now, we're going to press on. And so in chapter 7, he says, I'm going to talk to you about this Melchizedek. Uh, person for a moment now to understand that term with me first of all to Genesis chapter 14 Genesis 14 We'll be looking at verse 17 um, The context here is that Abram who's later renamed Abraham, but Abram has has gone off with his uh, um, his uh, the soldier guys and um, uh, what has happened is Lot was captured And Abram has gone off to rescue Lot He's gone off, he's fought a battle, uh, won it uh, Gained uh, plunder and the spoils of war But also rescued Lot So now he's on his way home with the plunder in tow And uh, Lot is with him And so we come to verse 17 After his return from the defeat of Cheder Laomar By the way, this verse has nothing to do with the sermon but I practiced Cheddar la'omar so often you were going to hear it whether it applied or not after his turn from the defeat with that guy and the kings who were with him the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of sheveh which uh, that is the king's valley and Melchizedek king of Salem we don't really know where Salem is a lot of scholars think it's Jerusalem Um, And uh, others say, no, it's some other town now unknown to us It it really doesn't affect the narrative uh, at all But uh, simply point that out But he's the king of Salem He brought out bread and wine Now, he was priest of God Most High He was a priest to the true and living God We don't know what he's doing with that Uh, This is the first time we hear about him It's, It's basically the last time in Genesis that we hear about him all we know is that he's a priest to the true and living God. And uh, he, he's come out to talk to Abram. Verse 19, he, that is Melchizedek, blessed him, that is Abram. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies from your hand. In other words, Abram, I'm here to tell you that this victory you just won... You didn't do it. God Most High gave you that victory. This plunder that you have, it's not yours. It belongs to God Most High. Your life that you think you defended, your, 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 your cousin, your kinsman, a lot that you rescued, you, you're, you're thinking that, uh, uh, that you did that. No, this was a deliverance given to you by God Most High. In other words, what was Melchizedek doing? He was taking Abram and he's saying, look, we've got to focus on God. We've got to focus on the true and living God. Understand that, Abram. God's blessed you, but we need to honor God. We need to exalt God. And as a result of that, at the very end of verse uh, 20, Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Abram looked at 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 the spoils of war and the plunder, and he said, you know, it does belong to God. It belongs to God Most High. And the tithe, the tenth, is a way to proclaim that. I give, I give a tenth of all that, that, that I've gained. I, I give it to God Most High and, I, and, and to his priest, his representative. I, I do that as a way to acknowledge that God is sovereign over this, this whole affair. Okay? Now, at this point, you have read everything we know about the historical Melchizedek. At this point, you are an expert in the life of Melchizedek. That's it. He's only mentioned one other time in the Old Testament. And that's in Psalm 110. Turn there with me, if you will. Oh, before you do that, stop. (laughs) Notice again this. Verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem. He's a king. He's a sovereign. He has all that governmental authority vested in him. King of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. Melchizedek was both king... And a priest, both king and priest. Now turn to Psalm 110. Psalm 110, as you're turning there, is um, um, what's called a royal psalm or an enthronement psalm, it has to do with uh, King David being seated upon his throne and God sanctioning that. Uh, that, uh, that rain uh, that, that David has And so uh, Psalm 110 is sort of uh, celebrating that But there's more going on than just that um, So often in the Old Testament what happens is A historical application and meaning of the verses Has such an underlining dynamic of what God is doing That it just points us to something more than itself and so this psalm has perfect meaning if you, if you think about it in terms of David and the throne of David, the reign of David and his lineage. It has, it has meaning in that regard, but it also has a meaning beyond that that points beyond itself. Get that? In other words, there is a proleptic vectoring of our thoughts. Did you get that? Anyway. But, but, but that's what we find so often, that, that what happens in the Old Testament is a way to think about, and is it, and used by the Holy Spirit to, to cause us to, to understand deeper truths than that. So um, that's our introduction, 110 verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your uh, footstool. We've already run into the ver- this verse applied to Christ in uh, Hebrews chapter 1. So sit at my right hand until, your, en- until I make your enemies your footstool, says David, Sit on your throne until I I accomplish all this. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. So the first three verses, David, um, I'm putting you on a throne. I'm going to, I'm going to sanction it. I'm going to guarantee it's success. You're going to have victory in battle, all those kinds of things. So that's the first three. He said, David, you're going to be a great king. And then in verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Where does that come from? Just, you're a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And you're pretty sure the first people who read this turned to the Bible dictionary, started looking up Melchizedek and trying to figure out who was, But understand what has happened. God is saying to David, you are a royal king. I'm sanctioning your throne. But understand there's something else going on here. Because with the lineage of David and the throne of David, I will make you a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Why? Melchizedek was... A king and a priest. Now, understand that in the Old Testament, the king was never the priest. The king was never the priest. And the priest was never the king. You know, you can talk about separation of church and state, or if you like, right there. But the way God ordained it was the king had the civil authority. The priest had the divine, sacred authority. Now, in Psalm 110, there's a prophecy of a day coming when somebody who is a part of the lineage of David, who is a son of David, will be both king and priest. You will be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. You'll be king and priest together. Now, that never happened in the days of David. It never happened in the days of the earthly kings of Israel. It never happened until Jesus Christ was born, the son of David, the one from the lineage of the throne of David, and he arrives as the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And Hebrews teaches us, and as the priest after the order of Melchizedek. So that's why we're looking at it. The author of Hebrews is saying, look, turn to your Bible there in Psalm 110. It tells us that this Jesus is a different kind of priest. He's not just another Levitical priest, another Old Testament priest. He's a different kind of priest, a superior priest, and there's a better priesthood. So so that's the Old Testament text that we're looking at. Now we can go back to uh, Hebrews chapter 7. And thank you for... um, Traveling that journey with me for just a little bit. Right. In Hebrews chapter 7, we read this. Verse 1. Verse 1. For this Melchizedek king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of Everything Now that is simply the recitation of the history uh, We just read that in Genesis All he's saying is, I want to remind you, here are the facts Melchizedek came to Abraham, blessed him And Abraham gave him a, a tithe, gave him a tenth Now, in the middle of verse 2 He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness That's what Melchizedek means uh, Hebrew for king, melech, righteousness, or, or righteous is uh, Zedok. And so Melchizedek Melchizedek, means king of righteousness That's just what his name means But as we read in Hebrews he's saying And that gets us thinking about the true king of righteousness That makes us think about the one who is not just has the, the appellation king of righteousness Isn't just called Melchizedek Because it seemed like a nice name And it was popular at the time But rather he is Melchizedek Because he is the true king of all righteousness So first by translation He's the king of righteousness Then he is also the king of Salem Salem, shalom, salam, peace It's, it's just a Hebrew word that means peace Is what, what he's referring to And so he is also the king of peace Now it's just sort of an accidental uh, fact of history that there was a town named Salem and Melchizedek came out of that town. But it is the ordination of God that Jesus is the King of Peace. See how we're thinking about Jesus? Not yes. Then it gets fun. He is without father or mother or genealogy. I was saying there, you know, you read the, the, the account in Genesis, and you don't read about the, 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 the father of Melchizedek. You don't read about his mother. You don't read about his, his descent and his ge- genealogy. You don't know where he came from. Now, look, you don't read about the father, the mother, or the genealogy of Chedorlaomer either. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we are given to think larger than just Melchizedek here. Here's why. The Old Testament priests had to have a genealogy. They had to have a descent. They had to be able to go through father and mother and get all the way back to the tribe of Levi. If they didn't, they couldn't be priest. If it was in question, they couldn't be priest. To be a priest in the Old Covenant, you had to know your genealogy. It was based on your uh, tribal Uh, relationships father mother and so forth but this Melchizedek is a priest and he's not a Levite he doesn't have a genealogy he doesn't have a family tree that gives him the right to be a priest he is simply a priest by the appointment of God Now we are led by the Spirit then to understand that Jesus Christ is our high priest not because he qualifies according to the old covenant but because he has been ordained by God himself to be our great high priest after the order of Melchizedek, priest and king together. That's what's going on in that verse. Okay. Now he is without father or mother, of genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life. That is, we don't. There's no account of his birth or death. And, and um, uh, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. Now, what is going on here? Now, who is this Melchizedek? Some have said he must be an angel, he doesn't have beginning or end, and that's basically angels Um, Maybe he's an angel But no angel ever serves as a priest The priest is taken from among men in order to serve his brothers See an angel cannot be a priest for that reason He cannot represent uh, humanity because they are not a part of the human race so it's not an angel. Others have said, well, this must be a, a, a pre-incarnation appearance of Christ, you know, that, that, that Christ was living in Salem and came out and he was a priest and that. But you, you saw the verse, it says, resembling the Son of God. You know, he, just, he, he, he has that appearance, he has that, that um, uh, sort of um, uh, demeanor and presentation that, that causes us to think about the Son of God and rejoice in who the Son of God is. So I'm, I'm telling you, I think what's going on here is Melchizedek is a historical person who went out and met Abraham and said, Abraham, you need to understand God Most High gave you the victory. Abraham said, you're right. Here's a tenth to symbolize my acceptance of God's claim on my life. And from that, the Scriptures tell us that uh, in, in, uh, through David was prophesied the coming of a king and a priest after the order of Melchizedek, who would reflect that same historical reality, but in a very much larger sense, and of course, that's fulfilled in Christ. You with me? All right, we're gonna speed this thing up. What would you say if I told you I'm halfway through the introduction? Okay. Well, let's do this. Let's go um, verse. uh, Oh, I want to go to verse seventeen. Well, let's back up to fifteen. That's good too. Well, actually, why don't we? Fifteen. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. In other words, it becomes evident that the Old Testament priesthood is insufficient. It becomes evident when you get a priest after the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witness of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, at this point, the name Melchizedek is not just a... um, um, sort of a, a, a trivial pursuit answer. Uh, you know, it's um, That name Melchizedek at this point has become the source of our joy and our confidence and our hope in Christ because he is king and priest. When You see that name Melchizedek and Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. That means that Jesus is Lord, king, and Savior, priest. It means that he is the one who delivers that he is the one who ushers in a new covenant, that the old covenant, as beautiful and as wonderful as it is, that old covenant that was able to excite the imagination of men and women, that they would think about the grace of God, that they would come to the sacrificial system and see that a God provides a way of forgiveness and restoration, that they would come to the old covenant and have just wonder at the, at the majesty of God's work. That old covenant yet is insufficient to save. But now we have a new covenant, and that new covenant is through our great high priest, Jesus Christ, priest after the order of Melchizedek, who's both king and priest, Lord and Savior. So whenever you see that word, Melchizedek, just stop and start singing songs about who Jesus is, about hailing, all hail, the power of Jesus' name, of that sweet exchange that is ours, our death for his life. All of that is wrapped up in that word, Melchizedek. So you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now let's see some of the ramifications of that. Verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. This means that we are in that new covenant in which it's not an external reality to be taught and it's sort of as an abstraction, but rather this is the internal working of the Spirit of God to Recreate us in the image of his dear son. Because he is that kind of high priest, we are in a new covenant with him. And we come to the table and we lift the cup. This cup, the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. So he is the guarantee of this better covenant. We have absolute certainty of covenant. But, um, verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. The priest came up, he might be a really good priest, but he's, he's going to die. Then you'll need another one. Then you'll need another one after him. So you have just a constant succession of priests. There are many priests. They all die. But he, that is Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. We don't need somebody to take his place we don't need someone to update Christ. We don't need someone to take him and make him uh, uh, meaningful in a contemporary way. We don't need someone to try to make Christ relevant to the world around us. He is our high priest, and he continues forever. There is no end to it. Amen. Amen. All right. Consequently, verse 25, he is able to save to the uttermost, he is able to save those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. There's about three or four sermons in that verse. I just want to give you this word, to the uttermost, absolute uttermost. Um, the Greek word there, um, panteles, um, means to the very end, to the absolute conclusion of where God wants you to be. Jesus is able to save us completely. Completely. He is able to save us entirely. There's no part of your life left out of the saving work of Christ. He is able to save us to the uttermost. That means there is no sin so deep and there is no stain so dark but that his blood cannot cleanse us and his grace cannot lift us up out of the pit of death. There's nothing you have ever done that Jesus cannot heal and forgive. There is no place in your spiritual journey that Christ cannot come and bring you back to where you need to be. You know, sometimes you'll think, I'm a lost cause. You'll think, I, I, I know others seem to be making it and others seem to be doing all well, but, but when I look at my life, I just, I, I, it's just not clicking for me and I don't understand it and I'm weak in my faith and my understanding is poor and I don't know what I'll do. Jesus saves to the uttermost and that includes you right down to where you are in your doubt and your confusion and your weakness and your temptation. Jesus saves you to the uttermost. He saves you to the uttermost heights of the glory of God. It's not like he's going to save you only halfway. He saves you all the way to the very throne room of heaven itself. Jesus saves us to the uttermost, absolute uttermost. Oh, what a rejoicing we have. that This Jesus, a priest after the order of Melchizedek, both king and priest, Lord and Savior, saves us to the uttermost. Now read with me verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all, When he offered up himself Under the old covenant a priest might have been the greatest high priest ever. He might have been able to preach magnificent sermons. He might have been able to establish large congregations. He might have been a great high, a, a high priest who was able to open up the old covenant and the, and the word of God and expound it and people can understand it. He might have been the kind of high priest who could attract uh, celebrities to come to his temple worship so they give testimonies. He might have had the best band and, and the greatest music. He might have had the most fantastic building but that high priest could not save you and he could not wash away your sins and he could not deliver you from the power of death and the fear of death beloved your pastor can't your Sunday school teacher can't your deacon can't your husband can't your wife can't Jesus Christ delivers us once for all it's a done deal that's the word once for all it's one word in Greek once for all Jesus died for us. There's nothing left to be done. It's not like you're going to sin and Jesus is going to say, Wow, I forgot that one. I better get back up on the cross. He died for all our sins. Once for all. And your salvation is secure. That's the second word. Uttermost, second word, once for all. Very quickly, verse 28. For the law appoints men in their weaknesses uh, as high priest. But the word of the oath, and remember that, uh, that in Psalm 110, it, 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 God said, I, I swear and I will never change my mind. You're a priest after the order of uh, Melchizedek. The word according to the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect. And here's the word, underline it, forever. It's unending. It's unending. When you're saved by the power of God, it's not like there come a point where you can end it. And there's no point where God wants to end it. You are saved for all eternity. That word is forever. To the uttermost, once for all, forever. Our great high priest, after the order of Melchizedek, has saved us. Pray with me, please. Gracious Father in heaven, just when we thought it couldn't get any better, it gets better. Just when we thought your your word could not be more profound, it gets deeper. Just at the moment when we thought Jesus could not be more beautiful, he becomes more attractive to us. Thank you for the work of your spirit through your word to point us to Christ. Father, I'm praying for that person here this morning who cannot say Jesus is my Lord and my Savior, that he is personal to me, cannot say that. Father, I pray for the work of your spirit. Open the heart. Open the eyes. Bring the conviction. Bring the conversion. Bring the confession. Father, I pray for that person who doesn't know Jesus. This would be the hour to claim him. And for brothers and sisters in this room, Lord, who are struggling, who feel exhausted, who feel as though doubt, they have more doubt than answers. I pray your Holy Spirit would give us a vision of Christ, our great high priest, and that we might have the joy serving him, walking with him.